Good morning. I want to say uh, hi to all of you in the room. My name is Dion, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to say hello to all of you who are joining us online, too. And as we uh, get ready to dive into today's message, uh, let me pause for a moment and pray for all this. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that, uh, that you are here because the reality is, Father, you are the one that we, we need this morning. Some of us come in here today, and life is, is good, and for some of us, life is challenging, and yet the thing that unites us all here is that we need something that only you can give, Father. We long for a word from you, help from you, hope from you, forgiveness from you, clarity from you. Father, whatever it is, we set our eyes on you, and we pray that you would meet us here in our need and deliver to us exactly what it is that we are longing for. Uh, and Father, you know what that is best, so keep us open and then provide. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, Saturday night of last week, I was, uh, it was after church, and I was with two of my three kids, um, Ellie and Corbin, over at Lucky's Market. And we were enjoying after church just a, um, you know, a perfectly nutritionally balanced dad dinner. You know, the rules of dad dinners are kind of different sometimes, right? So, uh, it, but it was perfect. It was, uh, we were having pizza and root beer. Can't ask for anything more the hero of my children, right? Uh, and so uh, we're sitting down, we're eating at Lucky's and we're just kind of talking and enjoying time together. My wife and our other daughter were away doing something together. And so it's just kind of fun just to have the three of us um, sitting there. And so we're talking. And my seven-year-old son, Corbin, who is quite a thinker for seven and also quite a talker. I'm not sure where he gets that from, by the way. Um, but he, uh, he all of a sudden out of nowhere just asked a question. And here's what he said. He said, do you ever wonder if all of this stuff about God and Jesus, do you ever wonder if it's real or maybe it's all just made up? And uh, we had just come from church, so I know that's why he was thinking about it. Um, but so, you know, is it ever real or is it made up? And I, and I can tell you that when he asked that question, I felt a shock of panic go through my body. Because although I've, I've imagined lots of different scenarios where my kids might struggle in life or where they might, you know, just have difficulty, or even I've imagined lots of different scenarios where my kids might make decisions that I can't fully embrace or support. I mean, I know those things are going to happen. To be honest, I have never seriously entertained the possibility that my kids could someday grow up and reject their faith reject a relationship with Jesus. I, I, it's never occurred to me. It's always seemed impossible to me because it's so real in our home. And yet I know it's not an impossibility, that it happens quite often. Sometimes even, even famously, I don't know if you guys know Katy Perry, the pop star. If you don't know her music, then maybe you remember a couple of years ago, she did the Super Bowl performance where she rode on a big mechanical lion singing the song Roar, or uh, even maybe the song that she sang for the Olympic opening ceremony is a, a song that she uh, wrote for that called Rise. Um, she's, a, she's a pop sensation. Um, and uh, she's also kind of known in the pop world for being a person who's pretty outspoken about her faith. And by her faith, I mean her lack of faith or her lack of belief in any organized religion. And what makes that interesting is that Katy Perry was actually raised by pastors, she was raised in a ministry household where both of her parents were evangelist pastors uh, and they went around trying to tell people about Jesus being, being the, real, uh, the real presence of God in the world. And, and that, that's how she grew up in a household steeped in the faith. She started off her career as a gospel singer, in fact. And then she made a break with all of it. And so uh, there's all kinds of interviews and stories out there about Katy Perry and her faith. Why? Because it's scandalous that a woman who was raised in a household of faith 
with devout parents would just stop believing all of that. Or maybe you know the the story of the late Steve Jobs. Uh, The story goes that he was raised in a a faithful church-going household, a church-going family. And uh, in his early teen years, he started asking some questions that either, either people in the church didn't have answers for or they just didn't want to answer. And so Steve Jobs became convinced that this wasn't a place where he could find answers, and so he walked away. So, so it's not impossibility, it's not an impossibility that people raised in the church can walk away. And so, you know, I'm playing all of this through my mind as Corbin sits there chewing, you know, just looking at me, waiting for an answer. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking through all of this. And, and, and luckily, my 13-year-old daughter, Ellie, that's when she broke in. And she said, yeah, Corbin, totally. I wonder the same thing. Sometimes I wonder if all of this is real. And I wonder if this could all be made up because it's just crazy to me. And, and uh, she's like, so it's okay. And, and when she said that, you know, I was like, because I know Ellie and she's 13 and she's a, she's a young woman of deep faith, even though she has questions. And it just reminded me of something. It reminded me of something so important, and, and that is this, that I would, rather, I would rather my kids struggle and wrestle and question and sometimes doubt than I would have them someday profess a face, faith with their mouths that they've never fully embraced with their heart or mind. Say that again. I would rather my kids question, struggle, doubt, and wrestle than to someday profess a faith with their mouth that they've never really embraced with their mind or heart. And so as Ellie said that, I, I thought about that. I'm like, you know, these things, this, this is okay. And so I said, yeah, you know what? I wonder too sometimes. And sometimes it does seem crazy. And this Christmas story is, is, is kind of far-fetched sometimes to us. It's just so miraculous. And yet, here's what I said. I said, and yet, in all of my searching, I've not found anything that explains life and reality as we know it better than what we find in the Bible. And that was good enough for him. He went on eating our pizza and we went on with our night. Scandal averted, at least for today, in the Garrett household. You know, in this series, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about scandals that surround the Christmas story, and there are more than a few. A couple of weeks ago, we started off with Zechariah and Elizabeth, this elderly couple, this couple who had been passed over time and time again, who are the ones who are chosen to be the parents of John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner of the Christ, of the Messiah. And then we looked last week at Mary and the scandal of God choosing this young, not yet married woman. I mean, what a stir that caused. And we'll look at part of that story today too, um, to to be the mother of the Messiah. And today we're going to look at the scandal of Joseph, the almost husband of of Mary and the, the man that God was choosing to be the human father of Jesus. And what we're going to find out about Joseph is that Joseph wasn't a guy who had an easy time believing any of the things that were happening around him. Joseph struggled to believe all of them at first. In fact, Joseph is someone who I would refer to as a skeptic. Now, maybe that seems a little strong for some of you, but if you look at the definition of skeptic, it's it's actually a pretty simple definition. It's a person inclined to question or doubt all accepted opinions. Again, a person who's inclined to question or doubt all accepted opinions. So when I look at that definition, I think, man, there's not a lot of harm there. But the reality is that people who are inclined to question or doubt accepted opinions aren't often welcomed within communities of faith, right? If you're a person who doubts or questions, you're often shunned or ostracized from churches. And so if you're a person who has doubts or questions, you either learn to keep them quiet 
You keep them to yourself. You, you don't tell anyone about them. And as I sat there with my son and my daughter, I thought, that's not going to happen here. If they've got doubts or questions, I want them to be able to voice those things. I don't want them to think it's not okay to raise these questions because it, it is. So, so either you'll keep those things to yourself, you'll hide them, or eventually you just, you'll just walk away without ever asking any of your questions. And yet, if this is what it means to be a skeptic, a person inclined to question or doubt all accepted opinions, th- then I just want you to know that, that it's okay for you to be here and be a skeptic. That you're in good company, because in fact, I would define myself by this definition. This, this describes me to a T. You know, I'm a cynical person. I, I'm, not, I'm not always, you know, like easily believing of things. And uh, I wasn't an easy kid to raise. And, and uh, if everyone believes something, I'm kind of likely to try to believe the opposite for a little while, just because I, I think if everyone believes it, maybe there's something wrong with it. And that's just kind of who I am. And, and, and I don't mean to be malicious, but I'm a person who's inclined to, inclined to question or doubt. And so if that's you today, I want you to know that you can be at home here because you're in good company, not just with me, but with Joseph, the man that God chose, intentionally chose to be the father of Jesus, the Messiah. And so today we're going to dive into Joseph's story and we're going to look at it starting in Matthew 1 verse 18. You can turn there in your Bibles here in the room or uh, the words will be up here on the screen. But first, before we dive in, I've just got to clarify something, and uh, Steve Howard did a great job of this last week if you were here. This might be a review for you if you were here. If not, I I just want to clarify marriage in the ancient world, in the Hebrew world. So marriage started with a betrothal, and it, it was more than an engagement when you were betrothed to someone, when you were pledged to someone. It really became a legally binding marriage. But after the betrothal, there was a formal waiting period, sometimes up to a year, And so uh, while they were married, they couldn't live together. They didn't consummate their marriage. And I know that's kind of different for us, but often we think of Mary and Joseph and their their, uh, arrangement as just an engagement, and we can break engagements. But this was stronger. They were husband and wife for up to a full year before they would come together as husband and wife. And so it's during this period of time where, where, where they're essentially married, but they haven't been able to come together yet, that Joseph makes a discovery. It's just going to rock his world. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now there's some loaded words there. Found to be pregnant. It doesn't say how that happened, but I want to know the backstory here. How, how was she found to be pregnant? How did Joseph find out? Did she tell him or did he find out some other way? I'm sure there's quite a story there. But here's what we know, even though we don't know the story of how he found out. We know that Joseph was deeply distressed. And you can imagine why. And, and look at his reaction. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had it in mind to divorce her quietly. See, we learned something about Joseph here, that Joseph, although he's a faithful guy, he's a guy of faith, Joseph's also a guy of science. And he knows that pregnancies don't just happen. We also know that Joseph isn't buying Mary's story. And Mary knew what was going on, an angel had appeared to her, but, but Joseph isn't buying it. He's not accepting it. He's not receiving it. For Joseph, there is only one clear and obvious conclusion to what is going on with Mary. And that is that she has become pregnant through a different earthly father, not him. And so it also says that because Joseph is a guy who's faithful to the law or a righteous guy, because Joseph is a guy who, who's going to do what's right and stand for what's right no matter what, 
he sees only one opportunity for himself, and that is he, he's got to put Mary away as his wife. This can't happen. He can't bring this into his house. That wouldn't be God-honoring in his opinion, which is really ironic that Joseph, trying to be a righteous guy, almost does the wrong thing. And I can't get into this today, but I wonder how often the same thing happens with us, that in our desire to be righteous, our desire to do what's right, to be right, I wonder how often we sometimes do the wrong thing. Because for Joseph, this is pretty clear. There's, There's no way this is anything other than what it appears to be that somehow Mary's become pregnant by someone else outside of marriage, and so he's going to divorce her. But before Joseph can act on what he absolutely believes to be true, God intervenes. It says, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. In a dream? Why in a dream? Right, every logical person knows you can't trust your dreams, right? And if, if you think you can trust your dreams, well, you're one of those people, aren't you? I mean, dreams, that's just a way that your subconscious works itself out. You can't trust a dream. I've had a lot of crazy dreams in my life, and I've never thought twice about any of them. And yet this angel comes and visits Joseph, an angel, that's good, but in a dream? No, no, Mary, she got an angel while she was awake. That would be helpful, Right? And a Zechariah, a couple of weeks ago, he got an angel while he was serving in the temple. He was a priest, and an angel appeared and scared the daylights out of him. Again, that would be helpful to, to help you deal with, uh, with things that are going on in your life that you're not exactly sure of. Um, you know, even later on in the Christmas story, on Christmas Eve, we'll talk about the shepherds and how an angel appeared in the sky, and then a whole host of angels appeared. Again, if you want to convince me, do that thing. Don't send an angel to me in a dream, in a dream of all places, but here's this angel in a dream, and here's what the angel says. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Or a better translation is actually, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, home. Again, she was his wife, but he had not yet taken her into his house yet. Don't be afraid, though, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. See, Joseph, it's not a big deal. Mary's pregnant, sure, but it's by the Holy Spirit. You've got nothing to worry about. Okay, then, why didn't you say so in the first place? No problem. It's by the Holy Spirit? Come on, again, like, what is this all about? And then the angel goes on and makes it worse. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means God saves, Yahweh saves, because he will save his people from their sins. So not only has this child been conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit, but now the angel says, Joseph, this child is going to be the savior of all of the people, the Messiah. This child is going to be the one who saves the people from their sins. Well, of course he is, right? Why not? Just pile on, you know. She's going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and all this other stuff's going to happen and an angel's appearing to me in my dream. Might as well make him the savior of the world. And it's almost like like Matthew, the editor, the one who compiled all these things for us. It's almost like Matthew understands that right now there's some of us who are a little skeptical who are just going, this... This is crazy. This is too much. How can anyone believe this? Because Matthew breaks in in the middle of the narrative and he reminds us of something that every faithful Hebrew person would have known. He reminds us of a prophecy that was written 700 years before by the prophet Isaiah where where Isaiah described that, yeah, although all of these events are crazy, they're exactly how Isaiah described them to be. Isaiah said they would be 
crazy. So we kind of break from the story for a minute, and this is what Matthew says. It says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means, literally means, in Hebrew, God with us. See, the virgin will conceive. I know it's crazy, but Isaiah, 700 years before this ever happened, said that it would happen in this crazy way. And surely Joseph would have known these words. And, and I imagine these words would have even started to rattle around in his own mind as he's, as he's experiencing all of this in a dream, that although it sounds impossible, 700 years ago, Isaiah said it would happen just like this, that a virgin would conceive and that son would be Emmanuel, would be the Christ, it would be God with us. So Joseph is not inclined to believe any of this. I mean, Mary's, Mary's story sounds crazy. And he knows how pregnancies happen. And the idea that, that his, his wife would be the one who would give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us, just seemed crazy. And sure, there's an angel, but it's in a dream, and there's so much that he could discount. And yet something begins to turn within Joseph. Watch what happens. When Joseph woke up, he doesn't shake off the dream and go, whew, crazy dream. It says, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. See, Joseph went from being a guy who was incredibly skeptical of everything that was going on around him to being a guy who not only took Mary home into his household, took her as his wife, gave her protection legally and everything else, but, but he actually named the child God Saves. See, Joseph went from not believing any of this to, to not only believing Mary's story, but to believing that this child truly would be the savior of the world. It's quite a turnaround story, isn't it? from being a, a skeptic to this. Now, maybe some of you object with the uh, whole idea, the whole description of Joseph being a skeptic. Maybe you see him as something else, but not a skeptic. And I don't want to argue that point with you. That's just a, a point of opinion, I guess, difference of opinion between us. But here's what I can say about skeptics and skepticism, that skepticism can be a healthy thing. It's gotten a bad rap in the church, but I think it can be healthy because believing everything amounts basically to believing Nothing, and to not really believing anything at all. If, if you believe everything that someone tells you, if you're just kind of one of those people, or if you know people like that, then you know that amounts to not really believing anything. See, questioning helps you figure out what you really believe. Doubting, struggling, wrestling, that, that helps you go deeper. And I can say in my life, this is certainly true, that, that over the course of my life, man, I've, I've wrestled with the things of Scripture. I've wrestled with my faith. But instead of that taking me away, that's actually taking me deeper. And in fact, that might be what some of you appreciate about my teaching, that, that when I dig into the Bible, I just kind of look at it in a different way. That's because I don't accept what everyone else is saying. I'm, I'm digging into it for myself. And when I do that, it's, it's taken me deeper into deeper understanding, I think, of what the scriptures are getting at and who God is. I, I think questioning is a good thing because finally, truth always rises to the top. For, for parents in the room or for uh, people in the room who are concerned about someone in their life who is a little bit skeptical, who's inclined to question or doubt, you know, like I get sometimes with my own kids, 
they're thinkers, man, and sometimes, sometimes I wish they wouldn't be, but, but I remember that, that that'll take them deeper in their faith, that will help them, but ultimately I remember this, that truth is self-evident, that truth always wins, that truth always rises to the top. If you honestly pursue truth at all costs, you will find it. That's what the Bible says, but that's also what, what history, experience has shown us. So I want to show you a picture of these four guys. So uh, these are four guys who all started off as atheists, as skeptics, people who did not want to believe in a God, who couldn't conceive of it, who later on all became convinced, not only that there was a God, but that the God of the Bible is him. Over here, this is C.S. Lewis, over here on this far side. Uh, C.S. Lewis is a, is a brilliant writer, one of the brilliant, most brilliant minds of the 20th century. But again, he started off trying to disprove God, but he just couldn't escape the truth of who God is. And so uh, he called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England when he finally came to faith. He did not want to believe, but he valued truth, and so he, he ended up there. Next to him is Dr. Francis Collins, part of the uh, Human Genome Project. This is one of the guys who took the lead on mapping human DNA. And he started off not believing in a God, and when he looked into our DNA and what's encoded in us, he became convinced. Next to him is Hugh Ross, an astronomer, looking at the stars, same thing, not believing anything about a God, not, not imagining that, that you need that. You know, science can explain everything. He looked at the order of the cosmos, of the stars, of the planets, and uh, he became convinced. And then over here, Alistair McGrath, he's a uh, biomedical physicist, looking at just the wonders of science, molecular science, molecular physics. Again, he became convinced See, truth has a way of always rising to the top. If you pursue truth at all costs, it will become self-evident. I, I think the problem is, is that few of us are willing to pursue truth at all costs. See, I think often when we are in a pursuit of truth, um, it's, it's, uh, we, we sometimes use skepticism as a cover, not for things that we can't believe, but for something that we don't want to believe. We use skepticism as a cover for something we're not comfortable with believing, that we find inconvenient or hard or challenging. See, go back to Joseph. Was it really that Joseph couldn't believe that God could, could impregnate a virgin and bring the Messiah into the world that way? I don't think so. He knew the prophecy of Isaiah. Was it that Joseph couldn't believe that it was true? Or was it that Joseph didn't want to believe that it was true? See, it had to be difficult for him to get excited about taking home a woman who was pregnant, not by him, and it had to be more than daunting for him to imagine a life lived with people whispering and people questioning the legitimacy of, of, of this son, of, uh, of the gossip and the rumor. This could not have been the life that Joseph wanted for himself. And when that happens in life, how easy is it for us to turn to skepticism? Not as, a, not as a pursuit of truth, but as a cover for a truth that is too inconvenient, too uncomfortable, too harsh for us to embrace. See, I think skepticism can be a really healthy thing, but skepticism can also be a dangerous thing if used dishonestly. If I could just be honest with you, I think often in my life, my skepticism 
Sometimes it's pure, sometimes it's about truth, but I think often my own skepticism has been dishonest. See, in those moments in life when when I'm really wondering, when I'm questioning, it could be anything, but we'll just keep to the matter of faith. When when I'm questioning faith and I'm thinking, man, is is all this stuff real? Is, is Is this true? Am I just delusional that I believe all of these crazy claims of Scripture that a virgin conceived and gave birth and that 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 child grew into a man and he gave his life and he died and he rose again and now there's forgiveness for all and life for all? When I when I think about that, I mean that can sound crazy. And on the days when I'm wondering, like, am I just delusional and worse? Am I deluding a whole bunch of people unintentionally with this? If I'm honest, it's not usually because I'm wondering if this can be true. All of this stuff we teach as Christians. If I'm honest, it's usually because I'm wondering if all of this is really worth it. See, I'm actually convinced, logically, that that this is true. I believe there's no better worldview, there's no better explanation that, that brings coherence to understanding life more than the Bible. I know there's some hard things in there, but, but man, I defy you to find another worldview that makes more sense. I don't believe you'll find it. And, and you know, you've got lots of other people who tried and they couldn't find it either because they were honest in their pursuit. See, I believe it's true. All of this. Deep down, I really do. I had someone after the last service say to me, you know, it takes faith to, to not believe this. And, and he's right, it does. I believe this is true. But I'll tell you, there are days where I'm not sure that it's worth it. Where the call of God just seems too high. And the teaching of God just seems too confusing. Where the, uh, the call of Scripture seems too demanding. Where there are other times in life where, you know, just going through hardship or difficulty or challenge, moments of feeling forsaken, uh, it's, it's hard for me to believe that God is good and loving because I'm experiencing pain. And even though I know he's there and I know there's a reason behind it, I just kind of don't want to do it anymore. And I'm wondering if it's all worth it to pursue a life of, of faith and faithfulness, obedience to scripture. See, for me, if I'm honest... My moments of darkest skepticism, they aren't a question of whether this is true. It's, it always comes back to the question of, is this really worth it? Is this what I want? Or is there some easier way? And I'll tell you, in those moments, if you've ever been in one of those moments, what, what is a healthy skepticism actually becomes something else. That dishonest skepticism becomes what we might call cynicism. And uh, the way you can think about the difference is this. Someone put it to me this way this week. Skepticism is a hesitation to believe something without a substantial amount of evidence, right? You just don't know enough, so you're not sure. You need to be convinced. Cynicism is a hesitation to believe something despite the overwhelming evidence. And how often in life do we let ourselves fall into the second category? I mean, you think about Joseph again. He had some hard things that he needed to believe, but it wasn't exactly a wobbly case either. He had a prophecy that was 700 years old that he knew about. He had an angel appearing to him in a dream. And I know it's not ideal to dream, but an angel appearing to him nevertheless. He had the eyewitness testimony of, of, of Mary, this woman whom he knew. She was a woman of goodwill. She had been honest the rest of her life. And so why would she deceive him now? He had all of that, not exactly a wobbly case. And so Joseph had to make a decision. And his decision was to surrender his skepticism. 
and to embrace something that was hard for him to believe. Joseph had to yield. And frankly, I think that's the other side of all of this. Do I believe skepticism can be healthy? Yes. Do I believe it can take you deeper? Yes. Do I think it can strengthen your conviction? Yes. It's done all of that for me in my life, if it's done honestly. But I still think there comes a point in life where you just have to yield. Where you have to let God come to you on his own terms, not yours. Where you have to leave room for God to work things out in ways that you might not be comfortable with, in in dreams, in visions, in prophecies, and in angels, and in miracles, and in miraculous conceptions. Because if you're not willing to yield at some point, if it always has to be on your terms, then, then you will miss some of the most wonderful things in all of life. And see, I think this is part of the scandal of grace. Not only is, is it a scandal the way God brought grace through his son into the world. I mean, there's scandal all over this story and it just continued throughout Jesus' life. But I think this is the other part of the scandal of grace that God demands that we make ourselves open to him meeting with us how he determines in the way that he chooses, not in the way that we choose. So so Joseph may not want a a dream, you know, God, not a dream, not a dream. Write it in the sky and have 10 witnesses around me who can all corroborate it and help me know that I'm not crazy. Like, that would be better, right? And, And those would be his terms, and yet God gave him enough. And I'd say in our lives, God often gives us enough if we're willing to meet God on his terms, if we don't demand that God meets us on our own terms. But, but if you're not willing to do that, then the same thing that happened to, to the people later on in Jesus' life will happen to you because it, didn't just, it wasn't just Joseph who wrestled with all of this, right? Jesus grows into a man and he starts teaching. But not only is he a teacher who claims to be from God, he does miracles, Miracles out in the open for everyone to see, and he's feeding people, and he's healing people, and he's raising the dead even. I mean, clearly, this is demonstrating that this man was from God. And yet, out of the thousands upon thousands of people who witnessed these things, after Jesus' death and resurrection, at first he only had a couple hundred followers at best. Why? Was it because of a lack of evidence? No, I I think it's because Jesus came on his own terms and, and he did things and said things and hung out with people and, and uh, acted in ways that people just couldn't stomach. They didn't like it. They weren't comfortable with it. It wasn't on their terms. And the, re, the result of that, of their unwillingness to yield, was that they missed him. God came into earth in human flesh and people wanted it another way and so they missed him. See, the same thing is a huge risk for us if we demand that God meets us on our terms. No, God, not, not a dream, not through an angel. I, I need it to be like this. I need it to be like this on my terms. In fact, if you do that in any part of life, in any relationship, if you demand it to be on your terms all the time, good luck. You're going to miss out on a lot in life. But here's some good news for you. That even if you've been a person who's been resistant, even if you've been skeptical, even if you still are skeptical, God doesn't mind. And uh, he doesn't give up on you. 
He doesn't get tired of your questions or your doubts, if they're honest. Even if they're dishonest, he doesn't get tired of you. Instead, here's what we know about God, that he keeps pursuing us. He keeps being good to us. He keeps showing kindness and love and favor to us. Whether we're willing to receive him or not. And that's what Christmas is all about. Over, over human history for thousands of years, God trying to get through to his people and they keep shunning him. They keep missing it. They keep demanding that God function in a different way according to their terms, not his. And so finally God does something so beautiful and dramatic that it changed the world forever. God comes down in flesh and he says, okay, I'm here on your terms, but even so people still rejected him. And yet that, this is who God is. He keeps pursuing us. He keeps coming to us. He keeps revealing himself to us, hoping that someday, someday, you'll yield, you'll surrender. You'll get honest in your skepticism and you'll look at all of the evidence of his love and kindness and favor because it's all around you. The evidence of his goodness and his design and his purpose for the world and for your life, it's, it's everywhere if you have eyes to see it. God keeps pursuing and he'll keep pursuing you until the day that you might open your eyes and receive it. So today, here's how we're going to close. I know it's kind of a heady message. But today we're going to close with a song because music has a way of kind of getting through to our hearts. And uh, the song is all about what I just talked about, that no matter what we do in life, no matter how far we fall, no matter how far we run, no matter how resistant we are to the grace of God, his presence, his love, that Emmanuel promise is, is all around us. God is, God is here and he's present and he's working and he's active and my hope for you is that maybe during this song, you can yield. You can just open yourself up in some small way. You can open up your eyes to seeing God's work all around you. You can open up your mind and your heart to the possibility that he is more than you believe today and that God might reveal himself to you a little deeper as we sing this song. So please stand.